Hello and welcome to this episode of the Geoeconomic Agenda, a podcast from the Institute of Geoeconomics at the Asia-Pacific Initiative in Tokyo that investigates the connections between economics, politics, business, and society. I'm your host, Paul Neto, and I'm a visiting researcher here at the IOG. In a moment, we'll sit down with Dr. Saori Katara of the University of Southern California to talk about the role of ASEAN in the global economy. But first, here are the latest developments from the world of geoeconomics. On January 11th, the United States and United Kingdom began Operation Prosperity Guardian, a series of retaliatory strikes against the Iran-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen following a series of drone and missile attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea launched by Houthis since the beginning of Israel's attacks on Gaza. The Red Sea is a critical route for international trade, and while the Houthis have said that their attacks are in retaliation for Israel's actions in Gaza, the ships targeted frequently have no connection to Israel. Some shipping has been redirected to other routes, such as around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa, while the cost of war risk insurance for ships traveling through the Red Sea has soared. Many tanker companies have halted their routes through the Red Sea. Oil prices have jumped above $80 a barrel since the beginning of the attacks, and container shipping prices have jumped 60% since the beginning of the year. Broader threats to global commerce are more uncertain, given that the low cost of shipping and consumer prices may make specific economic impacts for consumers muted. The European Union and the United States failed to reach an agreement on their dispute over U.S. tariffs on steel imports from the EU, and have instead agreed to continue the pause on mutual tariffs until 2025. This means that the United States will not impose tariffs of 25% on EU steel and 10% on EU aluminum, while the European Union will not impose retaliatory tariffs on products like whiskey, motorcycles, and powerboats. The delay gives both sides more than a year to reach a permanent agreement, with the Biden administration expressing hope of creating a system that can address overcapacity in the steel industry, along with less carbon-intensive industry practices. The United States has shelved plans for a trade agreement with the United Kingdom following Senate opposition, according to Politico. Similar to the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, or IPEF, whose trade pillar was shelved in November, This proposed agreement would not consider market access or meet the World Trade Organization's definition of a trade agreement. A spokesman for Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat of Oregon and chair of the Senate Committee on Finance, which has jurisdiction over trade issues, said that Congress must have a clear role in approving any future trade agreements and that he believes that it is important for USTR to be significantly more engaged with Congress on any future negotiations. Japan's Nippon Steel reached an agreement to acquire U.S. steel for $14.9 billion that was announced on December 18. The proposed deal, which requires U.S. regulatory approval from the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or CFIUS, has drawn significant bipartisan scrutiny in the United States. Senators J.D. Vance, Republican from Ohio, Josh Hawley, Republican from Missouri, and Marco Rubio, Republican from Florida, objected to the proposed deal on the grounds that steel production, they say, is a national security interest, while Democratic Senators Sherrod Brown of Ohio, John Fetterman of Pennsylvania, and Bob Casey, also of Pennsylvania, along with Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, have also expressed opposition out of concern of what the deal may mean for union workers. 
the Biden administration has said that the deal deserves, quote unquote, serious scrutiny and supports a careful review by CFIUS. This is the Geoeconomics Agenda with Paul Netto. Today I'm sitting down with Dr. Saori Katada. She's Professor of International Relations at USC. Dr. Katada, Saori, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. So we'll start with the most recent news. On Sunday, Japan met with ASEAN states you know, to mark the 50th anniversary of Japan-ASEAN cooperation. What's the significance of that relationship? Why have a big, well, I guess two questions. What's the significance of that relationship? And what came out of this, of this meeting? Yes, obviously. So for Japan, ASEAN is a great partner. It has been for a long time. Uh, ASEAN's formulations in the 1960s, Japan's relationship, uh, kind of a formal one started in 1970s. So that's why this is a 50th year anniversary. But for Japan, it's been a great partner. Uh, for a long time in the context of the Cold War and going into economic growth, the uh, regional production network has been uh, centered mm -hmm. there in the 1980s into 90s. Mm -hmm. But more importantly now, in the context of rising China, mm -hmm. ASEAN is a very important partner for Japan in mm -hmm. making the regional order intact and kind of fend off uh, China's uh, aggressive actions and mm. things like that. On the other flip side of it, for ASEAN, Japan is a very trusted partner. Mm. So this is a, a really an important uh, relationship mm. in this region. Mm. So what came out of this meeting? You know, what they, there was a joint vision statement. What, what, is that, what does that statement tell us about how they see this relationship going forward? I think you know, what you summarized um, about the, the, his, how, the history, how we got here, makes a lot of sense. But what about going forward? Where did, how do these countries see their, themselves moving toward the future? Well, many concrete suggestions, concrete plans, mm -hmm. uh, a joint statement, and, mm -hmm. you know, many of the items. But I think a big takeaway are two. Mm -hmm. So one is that Japan is going to be our equal partner, or the other, maybe flip it the other mm -hmm. side. ASEAN is going to be the equal partner to mm -hmm. Japan. You know, Japan has been the kind of big brother to ASEAN for mm. a long time with foreign aid and various te you know, technical as uh, assistance and uh, finance and so on and so forth. But now ASEAN is going to be the same size or take over Japan in terms of nominal GDP <laughs> in two years, according to the IMF. It's right, right now, it's the fifth largest economy right. in the world if you were to aggregate ASEAN economies. Right. And in two years, it would it will overtake Japan, is what you're saying. Uh, well, depending on the, the pro no, projection, yes, mm, it is. Right. And, you know, given the youth uh, demography and many resources, and uh, it is very, you know, very important. So in some ways, uh, Japan is not going to see it from you know, kind of looking down or maybe mm. uh, pretending or, or, you know, kind of... No uh, longer paternalistic. Yeah, no paternalistic in mm. that nature, but also, uh, uh, but more of an equal term. So mm. that's uh, probably an important takeaway from this, uh, this uh, meeting. But at the same time, some concrete matters, especially I think what's been most, uh, most reported is the decarbonization mm. agreement. So they had the meeting, I think it was the last day of the series of uh, summit and meetings and where they are going to work together mm -hmm. to create their decarbonizing future mm. uh, you know, in, in their own terms. Mm. And I think in some ways, this is the Japanese way of leadership 
reflecting the ASEAN way, which mm. is you know, the kind of important phrase in Asia. Can you, can you explain what the ASEAN way means? Um, well, it, it can mean various things, but uh, uh, probably taking its own course, you know, sovereignty being mm. very important, uh, consensus uh, yes. building, and with the kind of pace which is based on their level of growth, level of development. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, instead of the Western countries, especially, well, including the United States, mm -hmm. imposing certain goals, uh, depending you know, from the, their perspective, they are Japan and Asia, ASEAN countries would go in their own terms and with their strategy uh, based on you know, the, the hydrogen, coal, mm -hmm. you know, some possible clean coal, things like that. So mm -hmm. I think uh, it's been received well in Asia or with ASEAN, but I think there are some suspicions on the part of the West and say, well, what is Asia going to do with hmm. uh, you know, this uh, decarbonizing future? It's interesting because it does kind of dovetail, I don't know if you want to say neatly, ironically, you know, pick your word, but this agreement, you know, lines up, maybe that's one, with the APEC summit last month in November. And the, I don't know if you want to call it a collapse or perpetual postponement of the Indo-Pacific economic framework that's left the U.S., you know, at the door, not really entering the door, but, you know, standing on the sidelines for a while longer, at least until after 2024, November, and we'll see what happens after that. So what is, what, if you were to line these two events up, side by side, you know, not just chronologically. What does, what does it mean for the relative influence of the United States in the region? You said the West is going to be a little bit frustrated, a little bit circumspect about what decarbonization means, but, you know, what, what does, why, hmm, okay, I'll put it in a pointed way. Why should ASEAN care what the West thinks if they're not even going to be involved? Well, actually, U.S. is very important still hmm. for Asia. Okay. Uh, one of the, you know, even though IPEF, the, the uh, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, itself is not an attractive deal for mm. Asia, the reason why many of them, so that's 13 of them, you know, uh, excluding the mm -hmm. rest of this is agreement, mm -hmm. agreement or the negotiation of the, among the 14 countries, but these 13 of them uh, received the U.S. very you know, warmly and mm -hmm. favorably is because this is a way to engage the United States in Asia. Mm. Uh, in many ways, or economic terms as well as security terms, Asia still needs U.S. presence. Mm -hmm. So this is really an, a welcome, welcome sign. Uh, on the other hand, you know, obviously there are limits, there are constraints that U.S. Mm -hmm. face especially with the presidential election yeah, coming up. Exactly. And then they were aware of that, these type of constraints. And it actually manifested itself quite visibly this time. Yes. Right? So the yes. trade pillar, so IPEF comes with four pillars. The one that Asia actually welcomed the most or looked, uh, really expected the more out of, mm. the trade pillar didn't materialize, right. while other three, the, the, the supply chain, the clean economy, as well as the, the fair economy, the, mm -hmm. all that three pillars have come about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that clean economy includes the decarbonization goal and mm -hmm. some uh, technical assistance, I think funding of 3,000, no, sorry, $300 million committed mm. to the clean technology, things like that. So, mm -hmm. you know, there are some nice outcome which came out of mm -hmm. IPEF but still not quite the one that uh, 
Asia, especially the developing Asia, hmm. was looking forward to. What were they looking forward to? Well, so IPF doesn't have the market opening, right? But there are various issues that was included, like digital economy, right. which could be an important again uh, business opportunity for many Asian countries. Hmm. Uh, obviously, they were thinking about maybe having IPF coming on board would actually allow them to you know, get more access to the U.S. Mm-hmm. market or some kind of credit and support. So that was something that didn't get included. Right. I mean, it's it's hard to to ask a question about a how do you want to put this uh, counterfactual, and I guess <laughs> we won't know at this point. But do you know? Do you have a sense of what these economies might have been willing to give up for that market access? Because among the trade policy crowd, at least the D.C. centric trade policy crowd, there was always the assumption that if you're not taking market access off the table, that these economies would have no incentive to do the things that the U.S. is asking. You know, labor standards, environmental standards. You know, you go on down the list. Is that a fair characterization, to the best of your knowledge? I mean, without market access, well, what would have been possible? Yes and no. I okay. guess it really depends on what kind of rules. Okay. Right. So, many ways, uh, I think one thing that is in jeopardy at this point, mm. you know, in the last probably 10, 15 years, is the international liberal economic order. Right. Which has been a significantly beneficial environment for Asia, mm-hmm. right? Even including Japan going back in the 1960s forward, yeah. where the free trade, even though there are protectionism and so on, but still uh, the rule of free trade, mm-hmm. uh, rule based order, all those are beneficial for economic growth, uh, exports, investment, mm-hmm. all those things for. For Japan, and then later on for many of the Asian countries, ASEAN totally included. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. And having IPEF, which US claimed, or still claims, I guess, to be the 21st century mm-hmm. kind of uh, framing of yeah. the rule-based order, yes. is still very important. So okay. overall, the framing of it is quite crucial, and mm-hmm. the US being on board on this was really kind of an important thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, to sort of pivot gently away from U.S. ASEAN, we'll bring in the other ba- major economy in the region, which is China. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you just said, ASEAN, you know, China may be the world's second largest economy. The U.S. might be the largest economy. But ASEAN as, you know, the fifth largest economy, and soon to be fourth, if, as you say, predictions hold up, that makes it pretty darn significant as well. And I think... There may have, there may often be a tendency to see ASEAN as sort of a. There might be a tendency to see ASEAN as simply a, a, a place for reshoring. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another link in the supply chain, a large market, and it certainly is. But you'd have to expect that this region has the 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 heft and the wherewithal and presumably the leverage to try to not just be a taker in however you want to frame US-China competition, but is something some as a group that could shape outcomes maybe. So where do they see their own place? You know, obviously, I assume they would welcome the, the reshoring efforts. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, you talked about the international liberal order. What, what does that mean for their relationship vis-a-vis China? 
So the usual depiction of ASEAN, mm. especially the small countries in mm. Asia, you know, maybe not as a uniform group, but individual ones, are seen as the entities that are hedging. Yes. Hedging between the U.S., exactly. hedging you know, between U.S. and China. And you know, this whole U.S.-China tension is very difficult for a you know, kind of position for them to be. Right. At the same time, that's such a, how do you call it? But I, my argument would be that they are much more proactive mm, agents interesting. than the passive ones. Mm. And yes, they, they have some constraints. Obviously, they cannot compete you know, for right. threat against, the, you know, against China or the US for that matter, but they can proactively move their ways around in order to maintain or you know, support a liberal international economic mm. order where that will be beneficial for them, while obviously not necessarily uh, excluding China altogether. Right. So in some ways, you know, for example, uh, Vietnam would like to, you know, in, in, what do you call it, uh, welcome China's accession to mm -hmm. CPTPP. Uh, Singapore is the same way. All the right. ASEAN uh, members who are TPP members mm -hmm. are actually welcoming China to be hmm. on board with it so that China will abide by the rules right. more. And you know, within China too, it's not a monolithic nation, even of though, course. yes, the strong kind of grip of the Communist Party is you know, uh, uh, quite significant, as well as Xi Jinping's leadership. But there are reformers in there, mm -hmm. and that's you know, these are the people who are pushing for accession and China's accession to CPTPP, and all the ASEAN members that see that as to be a promising entry hmm. into China, uh, binding them hmm. to the kind of international rules-based order for them to kind of continue this type of um, liberal order, which is, again, very right. beneficial for them. Right. right. So that's that's the kind of thing that uh, they are pursuing. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, it's it's quite active in that sense, mm -hmm. and also they are themselves reforming and kind of becoming more rule based uh, mm -hmm. entities. And the Indonesia's reform on right. the you know kind of the, the privacy law has some uh, no, no, not string string sorry strong restrictions on the uh, local data localization, mm -hmm. things like that. So they are unilaterally, mm. in some ways, abiding by those rules so that they can actually pitch in mm -hmm. when US presence is receding mm. due to the Americans' own, uh, own uh, domestic mm. if I, Sorry, can I ask if I can follow up on the point about CPTPP? It's interesting that you say that there's a, an initiative to, to bring China in so that it will abide by the rules, by, or abide by the rules of the international liberal order. That, I think, to an American audience, that would sound a lot like the justification behind the United States supporting China's ascension into the WTO. Right. A talking point which these days is absolutely toxic. So it's interesting to see that dynamic play out now, say, 24-odd years later, in ASEAN, do, do they have similar concerns with CPTPP in China that you hear in the U.S., or are they willing to take their chances? Well, so Asia has to live with China. Exactly, sure. yes. yes. So whatever the means they have mm. to tie it to the you know, 
well, they, they saw that they would. Mm. You know, obviously, yes, there are concerns. Uh, mm. U.S. produced a report after 20 years of China being in the yeah. WTO. The reform hasn't, you know, hasn't really pan out. There are a lot of behaviors, the kind of role yeah. being, you know, being not followed and then so on and so forth. You know, and Japan is also ambivalent about mm. it, right? But China is willing to come on board to CPTPP. They claim that they will follow the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, then maybe, you know, maybe it's not the best of the world. I think the best of the world will be the WTO functioning smoothly. U.S. have full support. <laughs> and that is the best multilateralism that has been in place. While so China and the CPTPP is more likely than a functioning WTO is what you're inferring, I guess. Well, for now, for now. Uh, but again, I think there'll be a long road before China can be yeah. uh, approved. No, you know, the, the CPTPP members will right. fully approve China's accession. Right. You know, it's not like UK where it took, what, uh, two years, I guess, mm. for them to actually be uh, given permission right. to enter. While it's going to be a, quite a long road. Uh, I think when it comes to WTO too, I think China start getting interested in talking about it in 1986. Is it, so it was, it was yeah. even before WTO. It yes. was GATT. Yes. And took them, what, no, to, to, until 2001 right. to, be, to be admitted. So, you know, it's a it's pretty a long, long game. And yeah. obviously, main thing that Japan has been asking U.S. to do is come back to TPP. Yes. Of course. But... There's no sign at this point, you know, with, again, the presidential election coming up 2024, mm-hmm. probably not likely. And if Biden loses, then, you know, even less likely, it mm. seems like, but we don't know that yet. Okay, let's turn to China then. What does China want to get out of out of ASEAN? What do they see coming from these countries? And we talked about Japan, we talked about the US, we talked about reshoring. Mm-hmm. You know, China is the 900 pound gorilla in the region. And like you said, they're not going away. So th- they must have, you know, interests and in something they'd like to get out of the region as well. Well, I think many things, you know, obviously, you know, support, they are still having these, how do you call it, the, the, the charm offensive mm. going on with ASEAN, obviously. While nowadays, many of the reshoring might be uh, coming from China itself. Mm-hmm. China is getting more expensive. So mm-hmm. you know, producing in Vietnam makes sense for them. There are many ways to circumvent American protectionism as well as the, well, how do you call it, the Export controls? Yeah, export, so encircle, how do you call it? The, the, containment? The, yeah, contain, yeah okay, right. there we go. Containment against uh, mm-hmm. China, then like Chip 4 Alliance, you know, right. many of those things. So now China is producing in Korea, China, well, it's not, you know, obviously Korea is not part of ASEAN, but, you know, Korea, right. Korea but other They're diversifying, diversifying just like everyone else. Yeah, so many things, I think in many ways, ASEAN is also China's uh, important partner. Uh, partners of uh, mm. many other countries. The, the kind of warmness towards China varies among the 10 ASEAN members, so it's not mm. across the board. But 
you know, Cambodia, Laos, places like that, right. really need China's support in infrastructure and you know, so on, while you know, much more uh, different relationship with Malaysia and, right. and advanced countries like Indonesia and Philippines. Yeah, it's a good point you just raised because the thing about ASEAN is that it's actually, it's a very, very, very diverse, very heterogeneous set of countries that you've got highly advanced economies like Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, you've got, you know, poorer countries like Laos or Cambodia, and they all have to operate under an ASEAN way. So we've been talking, I mean, maybe I, I should have asked this earlier, but, you know, we've been talking about ASEAN as though it's almost like a, like an Asian European Union, mm -hmm. but that's not quite how it works, is it? No, well, European Union itself is quite <laughs> quite divided when it comes to different issue areas. Right. So it's you now uh, united is not not quite the description. But yes, there's a lot of sovereignty given up mm -hmm. to you for right. negotiations and things like that, which is not the case for right. ASEAN. And ASEAN centrality has been the cornerstone of East Asia regionalism. Mm -hmm. So that's why ASEAN is treated as a unified entity. Yes. And when it comes to negotiation with especially the regional uh, kind of extra extra ASEAN regional members like Japan or China, mm -hmm. ASEAN tend to be quite uniform. Mm -hmm. So that way they cannot play one against the, you know, the other. Mm -hmm. right? So, And because Northeast Asian uh, countries like Japan, Korea, China do not get along in the similar way as <laughs> ASEAN does, mm -hmm. as a centrality has been the really important component of East Asia's regional cooperation. Right. So that's one on one side. On the other hand, within ASEAN, there's a significant divide. Mm. And now I'm hearing, so I, I'm not an ASEAN expert necessarily, but I'm mm. hearing from ASEAN, uh, ASEAN analysis, an analyst as well as expert within, that there's a lot of fissure among ASEAN members. Mm. Especially there is a, a quite significant contrast between the ones who are doing very well and getting more yes. power, like Indonesia is yes. now thinking about, well, maybe it will belong to BRICS instead, or, you know, mm. it's a G20 member and mm. all that, versus those who still need to cling on to ASEAN as a way to promote their own interest. Yes. So altogether, you know, this is ASEAN itself is not uniform or monolithic, mm -hmm. and it's not a done deal in terms of this is going to last as a very a solid, uniform entity. That's my understanding of where it's hmm. heading. But it really depends on the regional environment as to where it's going to go. Hmm. But you know, for, for now, it's uh, you know, going back to the first point, definitely a most, you know, one of the most important partners to Japan. Hmm. Well, on that note, I think we'll wrap up here. So Dr. Saori Katada, thank you so much for joining us today. This is going to be a fascinating space to watch. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. This is the Geoeconomics Agenda with Paul Neto. Finally, people may remind themselves that wealth is fleeting to remember the transience of material wealth. But it's more than a simple fact of life, and it's more than a proverb. Money has to come from somewhere, and it can also disappear entirely, even as a concept. For example, in England, money completely disappeared with the fall of the Roman Empire and the financial system that came with it, and was only reintroduced a few hundred years later when the Vikings later demanded payment to stop their raids. Jean-Baptiste Colbert, France's chief minister of state under Louis XIV, was faced with the problem of how to get gold for a kingdom that didn't have any gold mines. 
His solution was to get it from overseas, not by conquest or through colonization, but from selling luxury goods to countries with the gold to pay for those goods and implementing an early form of mercantilism in the process. But one of the most remarkable modern examples may be from Brazil, where the government used fake money to solve a real monetary crisis. National Public Radio recounts the story of how Brazil was stuck with fighting 80% inflation in the 1980s and with no obvious solution. Because inflation is more than the overabundance of money, but also an expression of people's expectations and the confidence of the economy, Economists not only needed to tackle the question of inflation itself, but also public confidence in the system. At the time, prices in the grocery stores would change daily, and shoppers would try to race ahead of the clerk in the store with the price gun to grab items at the previous day prices before they were able to mark them up. Nothing else had worked, so a group of Brazilian economists under the leadership of finance minister and later president, Fernando Henrique Cardoso, created the Plano Real, whose key feature was the unit of real value, which wasn't a real currency, but a benchmark of where prices, quote-unquote, should be. The idea was that people would continue to use the cruzeiro, the existing currency at the time, but everything, prices, wages, taxes, bus fares, everything, would also be listed in the unit of real value. And where the cruzeiro was erratic, the URV was stable. After a few months of Brazilians seeing prices marked in stable URVs, the URV itself was launched as Brazil's actual currency, which is still being used today, called the real, and inflation ended with people's confidence in prices restored. So yes, wealth is fleeting, and it's not just a lesson for life, but also something that entire economies need to confront and solve. That's all for this episode, but stay tuned for more on the way. Until then, we want to talk about what you want to hear about, as well as take your questions for our show. So send us an email at geoeconomicagenda at ihj.global. Be sure to like, rate, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends, and most of all, keep listening. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to the team at API for making this happen, and we'll talk to you next time.